Christ and the people that are unbelievers and are outside of the body of Christ. So I'm, I'm going to divide these two. I'm going to start talking about the, the standard, the higher standard, actually, that should be applied within the body of Christ in our context, in our midst. And the, then I'll, at the end, I'll focus a bit on the big question, what do I do with the beggar on the street? Because that is often a reality that we face on a daily basis. So if we look at Book of Acts, the early church, Acts 4, verse 32, we see a picture of how they lived. They said that they had one heart and one mind, and nobody claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they have. Now, in a context where everybody shares everything they have, there's only two conclusions. Either everybody is poor or everybody has enough to, to live on. And I think it, it was probably the, the latter. But the, the reality is, in our context, that is not currently how we live. And the Bible also talks about that you will always have the poor among you. Jesus even said um, when he was speaking to, when he was uh, being anointed for, for um, his uh, crucifixion, he said that uh, they asked why did that she spent all of this, why was this, there's this great waste of this perfume which could have been sold for a lot of money, and then we could have given this money to the poor. And then Jesus said, no, she did a, a beautiful thing for me, but you will always have the poor among you. So there is this understanding that there will, will always be poor in our midst, but also in the, in the wider world, of course. Okay, now I want to argue that your stance on how you think about giving to the poor within the body of Christ is not a light matter. It has massive implications. And there are three passages I'm going to just look at. According to the Bible, it affects three things. It affects or is an indication of whether you, you have dead and useless faith or whether your faith is actually alive. It also is an indication of whether you truly have the love of God in you. And then the last one, which is a big one, is it's also an indication of whether you are actually ultimately saved and therefore going to heaven. So, yes, very, very... Okay, so to start with the first one, it's, in, it's an indication of whether you have dead or useless faith or faith that is alive. I'm going to read from James 2, verse 40 to 17 in the New Living Translation. It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters? So I want to just focus your attention on, he talks about brothers and sisters. This is talking about the household of faith, those that are believers within the body of Christ. It's not talking about the general world um, when he, he talks about gi giving to brothers and sisters, but he, says, he addresses the brothers and sisters in the church. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? You, you claim to believe in Jesus, but there is no evidence in your life of this faith that you claim to have. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Then he uses an example. He says, suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. It's kind of obviously pointless. Like, but you don't give them anything to, uh, anything to the person to help them. You don't give them food. You don't give them clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So the point is that if he uses the example when he tries to talk about faith of those that are poor among you, those that are needy among you, if you just speak to them in saying, hey, go well, may all your needs be provided, but you don't do anything to help provide their needs, and what's the point? That faith doesn't actually help anything. So the second one is whether you truly have the love of God in you. And that's in John 1 John 3, verse 17 to 18, um, where John writes and says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or a sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's, let us show the truth by our actions. You see, that same idea. If you claim that you have the love of God in you and you have no compassion for others, 
that's probably not the truth. That's not the reality of what's actually going on in your heart because your actions prove what is the truth that's going on in your heart. And then the, the third thing is whether you are ultimately saved. That's, that's the, the big one. And there's this very familiar passage in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46. I'm just going to sh- give some highlights. Um, but it's where people appear before the final judgment, before Jesus. And then it says, um, then the king, or Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For, and then he starts listing some things, but just notice this. He says, the people that I call blessed, that will inherit the kingdom that's prepared for them. This is the, the reason, or the, here is the, the proof that they are part of this group of people. It says, for I was hungry, Jesus saying, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your house. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we do all of these things? And then Jesus, the king, will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. It's again the idea of doing it to brothers and sisters, doing it for the people in the household of faith. If you see someone in, in the context of, of the body of Christ, in the context of the church, that is thirsty and hungry and um, you invite them into your home and they, they're struggling to, to help to care for them. Jesus says, if you do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, it's as if you were personally doing it to me. And then in the same breath, he goes on to say, away from you, uh, away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Now, obviously, nobody wants to be there. Because you didn't do these things. And he lists the exact same list. You say that I was hungry and you didn't uh, give me food. And he lists the exact same things. And then the people will answer him, uh, ask him, when did, we not, when did we see you hungry and not give you any food? And then the king will answer and he, was, he, he said, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. So Jesus equates caring for those that are needy amongst us to us actually directly helping, helping Jesus himself. And the response that he does is he says, okay, either you can enter in or you will go to the place for the, prepared for the uh, devil and his demons. It's quite a, quite a heavy topic. Because obviously we want to be part of the first group, but then how do we know when someone is actually a brother or a sister? Or, you know, because it talks about brothers and sisters. How do we know whether someone is a brother or sister? That's the first question. And then the second thing is the need is obviously so much greater than any individual can manage. Uh, even in the larger global body of Christ, the need is so great. Like, what do you even do? <laughs> you can't help everybody that's hungry and everybody that um, you know, doesn't have clothes, etc. So just some, some basic general practical things to help you with this. Um, so in, in our congregation, we started this thing called the general needs account. And this account exists with the primary purpose to help those that are needy amongst us. Um, I'll, I'll actually share the link on the, the Stellenbosch group after I talk here. Um, but the, the idea or this, the way it works is if there's somebody that you see that's needy, then you can pay into this account, you can put their name as a reference, and we'll make sure that the money gets to them. Um, it's just a nice, clean, accountable way of actually providing for those amongst us. Uh, and I just want to also share a bit of a, a testimony on that. The people in this congregation have given so unselfishly to this account that we've actually had so much money in it that we were able to help other congregations as well, such as Stellenbosch PM. There was some need there. They're not as financially well off as, as we are. We were able to help them in that. So, so this unselfish giving has, has really been a, a great value in our, in, in our midst. And I, I want to just encourage you to, to keep uh, using, making use of that. So just some thoughts on that as well. If you see someone that's um, struggling in this congregation, don't refuse help. Don't just 
ignore it, don't just walk look the other way, actually try to do something about it. If you see a colleague or a friend that's a little bit further away, but they're a believer and they, they're part of the body of Christ and they're struggling, don't just ignore their needs. Also, try to help as much as you can. So the point is, start with those people that are currently in your life. Help their needs as far as you can within your ability and as the Lord lays it in your heart. And then start worrying about the, the bigger need instead of being completely uh, paralyzed by the great need that exists and you actually don't end up doing anything. You know, I just want to briefly expand your understanding of who are those that are maybe needy amongst us. And uh, I, I want to maybe just define the word religion for a brief bit because the, the word religion has gotten a very bad rap in the charismatic movement and typically we encourage to stay away from religi religion. Um, and self-righteous religion, yes, of course, we need to address that and get rid of that. But the Bible actually defines religion for us and the true religion that God actually desires from us. In James 1 verse 27, it says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God our Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let, your, let the war corrupt you or keeping yourself unspotted from the war. So on the one hand, don't sin. That's kind of the easy one. The other one that he emphasizes as part of what is true religion is caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress. Now, I want to just expand these definitions. I don't think orphans is primarily just linked to those people that don't have parents. Um, it is wider than that. It's people that are isolated, people that maybe their parents are unbelievers, maybe their parents are very far away, maybe people are just isolated. They're not part of family, and family as in like our church family context. So pull them in, care for them, don't just ignore their needs. And then the widow is not just someone that is an old lady that's husband has passed away. It is someone that is maybe older, not fully capable of caring for themselves, probably single, and that is part of the, the widow that we also need to care for, those that are, again, somewhat isolated, that there is nobody that can help them or come around them. We ought to be those people that come around those people in our midst. So you can think of some people in your life and try to identify those as well, and they are also part of those that we, we need to care for. Um, uh, so there are other passages as well that I, I'm not going to go into now, but throughout the Old Testament, it emphasizes this caring for the orphans and the widows. And I also just want to point you to Isaiah 58, where God describes what is the true fast that he wants from us. And I'm not going to read it. It's a very, very amazing passage, very convicting passage. I encourage you to read it by yourself. Um, but one of the points that he makes is the true fast is to share your food with the hungry, to give shelter to the homeless, and give clothes to those in need, and to not hide from relatives who need your help. So even in our religious activity of fasting, if you want to call it like that, God still actually calls us to, to care for those amongst us as the, almost the primary fast that he desires. Okay, now I'm finally getting to the, the big question mark as to what do I do with the beggar on the street? And there's this very difficult passage in Luke 6 verse 30 which says, give to everyone who begs from you. No qualification, it just says give to everyone who begs from you. And uh, from one who takes away your goods, or in other words, that steals from you, do not demand them back. Okay? So just a bit of context. Jesus starts just before that. He says, if someone strikes you on your cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic as well. So in other words, if someone steals something from you, give them even more. <laughs> that's that's the, the attitude that Jesus kind of asked. And then he ends by saying, do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, I want to make the point that Jesus is... is using a bit of hyperbole here, but he's trying to paint the picture of what a true selfless heart attitude should look like in us. Um, an attitude which is completely guided by love and compassion that, it, that ignores its own rights, its own claim to things. Because actually all we have is, is God. So we, we deny our rights to, to claim anything for ourselves, and the, we actually have no limit to our self-sacrifice. 
That is what Jesus is trying to demand from us. So I'm, when, when I say, when the verse says, give to the beggar, I agree. We should be giving to beggars. But I have to qualify this and say, we need to give with wisdom. We need to give responsibly. Because the sad truth, as many of us know, is whenever you give money or goods to, to people on the street, it often isn't actually used to support families. It's often used for destructive purposes. And it's often a way, or it perpetuates the vicious cycle that th these people are caught in. So it's not actually truly helping them. So in that context, I want to say, if you find someone on the street, it's probably best not, unless if the Lord really heavily relies on your heart, but I'm going to get into that nuance. Um, rather make use of avenues or organizations which are geared to care for people such as this. And there's actually such an organization that started from this congregation. Um, cheese, yes. Or Heartflow is the, the NGO behind it. Um, so yeah, um, Shaul Reineke, please chat to him. If there's someone that you meet on the street that you feel like, yo, this guy's got a, a, a story. Like, we, we need to journey with this guy to get him to be in a stable place again. An organization such as Cheese is entirely designed and geared up and connected to lots of other support systems to be able to take these people through from the street all the way to being actually self-sustaining and in a healthy place. So use avenues like that. Um, and then the, the big main point ultimately is when we see someone that's begging on the street, the main question isn't how can I meet your physical needs, is how can I meet your spiritual needs, which is you need to be saved. Like the thing that we should be sharing with people is Jesus. Um, the, the big point that I was making initially is that we should care for the poor amongst us. But if someone is outside of the congregation, you shouldn't be a lone ranger that cares for their needs. That person should be saved, first of all, um, so that Jesus can take them out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light, and not just care for their temporal needs, but their eternal salvation. And then they're brought into the congregation where the congregation cares for them um, and meets their needs that they have. That is the healthier model instead of you being a solo person that's trying to meet people's needs. And then I just want to remind you in Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you, or, or all your needs will be provided. It's talking about food and clothing. That promise doesn't apply to the unbeliever. It applies to those that are um, seeking the kingdom first and um, you know, living righteously. So that is why <laughs> the gospel is central. For them to have their needs provided from God, they need to be brought into the kingdom. And then just the last thought. We also need to recognize that a hungry person really struggles to hear the gospel. <laughs> They're just thinking about how their tummy is rumbling. Um, and I often, uh, oh, there's this guy that I know that he often used to say um, that a meat pie and a Coke communicates Jesus loves you a whole lot better than just a slogan and a prayer that you just slap on someone. So sometimes it's very helpful to just say, okay, I'm going to get you a meat pie and a Coke, feed you so that you can actually hear the gospel and respond to that and then brought in. So bottom line is, let us truly have compassion. Let's not just say things like we believe or we have love, but let we, let's show it through our actions. Um, give uh, generously to people. First of all, those that are in the body of Christ in our context, and then also not forgetting the wider world that exists around us. Thank you. Yeah, it's good, eh? So um, I, uh, um, a friend of ours... A lady, she, um, she's a, a, a very generous person. We've always come to know her as a very generous person. And then recently she told us she had a big wrestle in her heart to whether she should tithe or not. And finally she would just come con uh, become convinced to, to tithe. And she said, now that I'm tithing, 
I'm uh, not so generous anymore. <laughs> my, my, my money for the poor and my money for the needs of others has just dried up. So everything has went into the, uh, went into the tithe, you know. And um, I think what, what we are trying to do is um, you'll see Renson, you'll see from time to time, we'll get guys up to just share the responsibility of the body to steward our money well and to give how to be faithful in that area and represent Jesus well, which, of course, includes tithing. <laughs> but if that's all that is being ministered to people, it doesn't give people a full picture of how we should represent Jesus well when it comes to the area of giving. And one of the things that I just here want to stand with Rensu on is, look, there's not a person here, there's not a person in this room that has not faced what to do with a poor person. We're in South Africa. Well, we're in, we're in the world, <laughs> right? And all of us has been confronted with this. What do we do when it comes to a poor person? And how do we represent Jesus well, okay? And I think in some, in some ways, we haven't always thought well on it, and we haven't always kind of give people the right tools for it. It's just like, you know, just give your tithe every Sunday. But <laughs> there, there is definitely a, a larger responsibility in regards to that. And I think even as he's speaking now, I realize with me, sometimes the need becomes so overwhelming that the best way to deal with it is just to harden my heart. Just make if it's not there. All right? And surely that is not the right way to do it. Right? Surely we need to have our hearts awakened to this thing that we can represent Jesus well in. Right? I think he's given some great practical tools on how we can do that. Right? And how we can take up our responsibility in regards to this area. So, um, I didn't even think to jump on it a little bit, but I do think just a little bit to jump on it, right? Um, we're going to bask in the presence of God now. But I just, I, I just want us to just consider that. Paul, Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 9 and says, Let each one give as he's determined in his heart. Right? It's days like this. And I don't, wanna, I don't know how to you guys at all. I think you guys need to come before God. But come before God and determine what is my responsibility, yes, towards the church, but also towards the poor, also towards the needs of others in the world. And, uh, um, and can we be faithful to what we have determined in our hearts in times like that, not as we stand before our favorite restaurant and go like, this will be a, small, uh, a bigger burger, but no, no money for the poor. Or I compromise on the size of my burger now so I can share it. Let's be faithful to what we've determined in our hearts, okay? So I'm going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to pray, and I'm just, I just want us to allow the Lord to where this area in our hearts, our responsibility to the poor has kind of gone dry or dead, that we allow that to just woken up again, okay? You guys are, you guys are with me. I don't know if you guys just feel really guilty or, or uh, everybody's just like more and more like this. I mean, I can tell you, Jesus loves a cheerful giver, and I don't see many here. <laughs> All right. Giving with cheerfulness. All right. A bit more smiling. All right. So, Jesus, we, 
we want to be faithful in representing you well. We want to be faithful in representing you well when we worship on a Sunday. We want to be faithful in representing you well when we go to our homes and our families. We want to be we want to represent you well when we go to our workplaces. And Father, we don't want to have a time where a colleague come into this meeting and they see us and go like, who on earth are you? Father, we want to carry who we are, representing you in times of worship, in times of this, as well in times of wherever you have us. Father, and we know that there is a responsibility towards the poor in Jesus. <laughs> Father, and I pray, Lord, even where we have uh, elevate some people's value higher than others. We want to repent of that, Jesus. Father, we want to repent of where we have regarded a soul of a rich person higher than the soul of a poor person, Jesus. Father, because you are not like that, Jesus. Father, once again, I pray that you will awaken us to the preciousness of every soul, of every person, whether they live in Mustard's Drift or whether they live in the street. They are precious to you, and you've died for them, and you desire to see them walk in fullness and wholeness and be in relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you will just come and work in our hearts once again, Jesus. Awaken us to that, Jesus. And, Father, I pray that we will be faithful as how we have determined in our heart to give in this area, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, guys. And it's wonderful to be here. I opened actually my Bible and my notes so that color can see I did prepare. If the Lord leads somewhere else. It happened this year that I've been preparing and then somehow I, I never end up sharing what I've prepared. So, so um, I, I feel I need to share something of what I've prepared today. But maybe, maybe to start with, you know, I was, I was, um, as we engage with uh, with our Father in worship uh, this morning, you know, when 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 Vince um, was teaching, I was thinking about it. The, the Hebrew word for to bless is the word barak, and it means literally means to bow one's knee and to give a gift. You know, it's, 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 uh, and it's, it's, it's more than representing God. It's, it's actually given an expression of the nature of God. You know, when, 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 when the Lord told the, the, the priests to bless the nation, you know, the, the priestly blessing, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, makes his face shine upon you. And, and there was the twofold purpose in that. It's, it's I believe God wanted to put a blessing on his people, but more than that, he wanted to reveal his nature to them. He wanted to, to reveal to them that he's not like Pharaoh. He's different. You know, he's a, he's the, he's a God who is generous. He's outgoing, always giving. You know, so bless the people, bless the nation, that my blessing will be upon them, but that they would hear and understand, I'm not like that man. I'm different. You know? And then the beauty of it is, 
He did humble himself. And he did give the greatest gift. The very nature of God is one of generosity. He's a giver constantly, always giving. You know, the beauty of, you know, now my head goes, we're going to worship now, but now I'm thinking of when, when, when the Lord gathered the nation, you know, after revealing to Moses the Ten Commands, or we, we, we read a little, uh, we went through the, the story with our kids, and this, 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 it's a kid's book, but they didn't call it the Ten Commandments, they called it the something of love, but it was beautiful. <laughs> but but, but you, you know what's so catchy about that story is that he's just delivered them from 400 years of slavery. They have now totally lost their identity as, or the only identity that was in them was one of being a slave, right? Their, their husbands were abused, their wives were abused, their children were abused, you know, they were slaves. And now this mighty, almighty, most powerful God, I mean, he's no more powerful than Pharaoh, delivers them from from Egypt and he gathers them, you know, together. And, and I'm thinking what they must have thought. Why did this God save us out of Egypt? I mean, what does he want from us? Because most probably their identity was in being slaves and surely he wants us to do something for him. Does he want us to build him an empire or buildings or, you know, what is, what is the requirement? Why did he save us? What is he going to task us with? And it's so beautiful there, the foot of that mountain gathering the nation. So I don't want anything from you. I just want you to love me. Isn't that incredible? Not like Pharaoh. Different. And I wanted to, this is not the teaching. I just, I felt like a stirring when Kala was sharing. And at A.W. Tozer quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it's a beautiful, there's a scripture in Isaiah 46, and I've, I didn't, I've never read that, but God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says to her, listen to these words, I held you before you were born. Held you before you were born. And I'll be carrying you when you are gray and old in years. There's another portion of scripture in the book of Isaiah where it speaks of God. You are our father, our redeemer. That's been your name from ages past. You know the beautiful nature of God. Your salvation and redemption and it is not an idea God had to come up with when Adam fell. It's like, oh my goodness, how do I fix this? No, no, no. He has been redeemer before anything created in man. He's never not been one who gives life. Now John 17 where Jesus Such a beautiful picture right at the end where Jesus says, 
And the Father has loved me from before the foundation of the earth. And the question would simply be this. Who was God before anything created? God was a father loving a son through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Before he was ruler, creator, he was father loving. That's the testimony of Jesus regards to his father and and why i'm so I'm, I'm i'm feeling to start this way is because worship it's not the songs that excites him and, and you've heard me say this it's not the song that he's after this morning it's you it's to have you in his arms it's to have a connection with your heart he's not tiptoeing with excitement because he's seen the song list he stepped towing with excitement because he knew you are coming boldly, face to face. And that there's an ache and a longing in him to embrace and to give and to love. That's his nature. It's always been and it's always will be. And I may just conclude this because Renzo, we spoke about this out of the blue. And I spoke to a friend in the car about this as well. You know, like, I have little kids, and some of you have, and some of you will experience the joys of having children. But you know what happens so many times, like in my kids, they are sitting there. She's, Lana is my first, the most beautiful girl in the world. Then it's Gilan, and he's the strongest. boy. And then there's Luca, and he's everything. He's the... He's the one that, that, uh, that's testing our salvation. <laughs> but you know what, what the thing is for them? Here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Lana is now growing up, and I'm not showing her my, my emotions, but there's something in me, and I know it's wrong, but there's something in me that wants to keep her just the way she is. I, I don't want the 15-year-old yet. <laughs> I just, I want this. Why? You know why? Because she still snuggles with me. And, you know, it's that, it's that thing. And here's the thing about dads. When their kids get born, they don't wish them adults. It's actually quite the opposite at times. And even though they are absolutely imperfect in their emotions, they're absolutely perfect. But when it comes to our view of the Father, that thing suddenly changes. And we think He's that Father that doesn't enjoy us in the process of sanctification, holiness, unto maturity. We believe we have a Father that will only be pleased with us. A Father that will only truly enjoy us once we have perfected His image within us. You know, and that's the age-old question. And uh, you've heard me ask that so many times. Do you think God loves you? And you're all of the, all, everyone in this room, would you answer would be yes, of course. But if it, do you think He likes you? Do you think He enjoys you where you are in the process at this very moment? That's a whole different question. It reveals so much 
of your understanding of Him. And it's not to say that we can relax in our journey. No, actually when love comes in, it motivates change. But when you are disconnected from a father that enjoys where you are in the process, and that actually this morning you're bringing delight to his heart and joy, wherever you are in this process or this journey, You see, and if enjoying God is not in the very epicenter of our journey of sanctification and holiness and maturity, it becomes a very difficult journey. What do I mean by enjoying God? It's not only having a revelation of His attributes and His nature, but it's having a revelation that you are being enjoyed by Him. And that He fully enjoys you as well. Just think about that. Like when my kids wake up, it's not, it doesn't bring doom and gloom to my day. It brings joy. Even though I know today I'm going to struggle with Luca somewhere. It still brings me joy, gladness of heart. That's how he felt when he woke up this morning. He wasn't like, oh my goodness, this one is stuck there. It's not going to be a good day. No. He's looking for connection with your heart. What man thinks about God is the most important thing about him. And this morning God wants to adjust a little bit of your lens when it comes to his nature and who he is. Are you guys okay with that? I felt the stirring in my heart when you, when you guys spoke that, you know, he's a good father. He's a really, really, really good father. I, I've just ministered. We're going to worship now. But I, just, I just came back from Ireland. I was in Ireland in Firebrand there in Dublin. And, and it's, it's the most broken people I think I've seen in my life. There's, there's almost zero father presence in the nation. Almost zero. And so we went away with this little church to a, a, a castle for three days to go wait on the Lord, which is just, you know, my heart was burning. And I, I wish I could invite all of you into that little meeting when the revelation of the Father heart of God walked in. When you see faces lighting up as their hearts connect with a dad that longs to embrace him. It's not angry or bitter or disappointed. But they could just relax and rest into the embrace of a father who's smiling ear to ear with gladness and joy. Amen. It's fascinating that whenever we go and pick up, you know, guys from the airport that's coming into Licker Just Jane or the guy from states or from Europe and those who have seen you know, pictures of Cape Town and Table Mountain, you know, from the airport you get this, this uh, beautiful view of Table Mountain and if you've never seen Table Mountain, I mean it's quite the sight and, and I found so many times on my drive back from the airport these uh, Americans or Europeans would, they would be stuck to the window in wonder 
and, and at, at this mountain, you know. But I really stop and look at the mountain anymore. And it's fascinating how quickly we lose our wonder. How quickly we stop being impressed. And if we're not careful with our hearts, it loses the wonder of the beauty of Jesus like that. If we're not careful to be good stewards with our hearts, we stop being impressed with the wonders of God. Familiarity is a dangerous place to be. And I don't know, I was thinking about that when we were worshiping him. I was singing, you know, we were singing, my heart burns for you. But I was a cry inside of me wasn't my heart burns for you. The cry inside of me is I really, truly want to see you. Because if my eyes behold the beauty of God, it will burn. You know, sight is the function of the eyes, but vision is the function of the heart. Hold him and to see him. And I'm going to share in brief what I what I prepared, but maybe minister a little bit more. I just feel like it's going away from this. Um, the other thing I was thinking of while we were worshiping is there's seven, and I'm not going there. This is what I prepared, but there's seven Hebrew words for praise, and the first one is the word halal. You know, and it has nothing to do with the food thing. It's uh, it's the foundation word foundation Hebrew word for the word hallelujah. And do you know what halal means? It means that you boast so much in something that you look foolish to an outsider, an outsider looking in. You boast so much in something that you look foolish. That's really what the, what the heart of that word in, in is, is to see you worshiping. Boast in your God to such an extent that you look foolish. And then there's this, there's this other word, tehillah. Tehillah is this, is this word that, that where halal speaks of your, your passion is seen, you know. You, you are foolish. Like when David danced before the ark, when they brought it back to Zion, he, he, he was boasting in the presence of God to such a degree that he looked foolish to Zion. Then you get the other word, which is uh, tehillah. And tehillah is really, in the core, in the heart of it, it speaks of a song born of the Spirit, born in the moment, in your response to whatever God is revealing to you or whatever God is busy doing in your life at this very moment. So sometimes when I'm, when I'm saying sing louder, I'm not, I'm not trying to create some atmosphere I'm trying to communicate that he is worthy of, of such a boasting that we look foolish this morning. I'm trying to say that he's so worthy that you need to leave with a sore throat. Because that's the kind of praise that moves him. You know? And I've realized something whenever there's an alabaster jar and someone wanting to be extravagant with it, there will always be a Judas 
calling it a waste. And, 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 and Stellenbosch AM should be so warring against the voice of Judas in your times where you love Jesus. You know what's the voice of Judas? Why the extravagance? Why sing that chorus again? It's been 40 minutes. When is he landing his preacher? The voice of Judas has to be silenced because the kind of worship that moves him is the kind of worship where the alabaster jar gets broken and nothing is left in it when he leaves. It's the kind of worship that moves him. And Judas's voice was a voice of reason for the religious, wasn't it? I mean, he had some strategy behind it. But he failed to see the worth of the man sitting in front of him. So he started weighing and calculating the extravagance of your worship. And if there's something, beloved, you need to be like, you know, guard your heart above all things, Proverbs would say. But make sure that there's no voice of Judas inside of you. Let your worship be extravagant. So my voice is gone almost. Because I'm, as a worship leader, you shouldn't be shouting while you know you still need to be singing. Because your voice will be gone. But you, when you get your eyes on him, oh, what, what do you, how, how else do you respond to the man with the lamb standing in the midst of the throne? The one who's, who's marked eternally. The one whom you and I will stand before one day, spotless, clean, pure, without wrinkle. But he, his scars will be seen. How, how do you respond when you see him? What's a worthy response? And I was looking at some of you as we were worshiping this morning. Some of you just, the tears just came. The tears just came, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus, I want to I love you that way. You know, something, when the tears come, you know the heart is in it. There's something about that, you know. And so I want to encourage you guys with those two words this year, halal tehila. That your worship need, I need, I want to see your passion. And I want to hear your passion. I want to see your passion. And I want to hear your passion. Because he's worthy. Amen. Is that okay? Silence Judas. Give him no voice in this congregation. Give him no voice. I felt like as we were worshiping, God's going to invite you into times of just lingering and being with him. Moments of, 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 of really standing in a river of oil. Just have a sense that God wants to invite you into quiet but deep places. This year, I really do believe as a congregation, you are going to encounter facets of his face that you've not seen before.
truly God to be revealed in His nature and His heart Amen. in ways that will drive you guys crazy. You won't help but fall in love. Fall in love with Him. Fall in love with Him. I'm a little bit ruined after worship this morning and uh, I'll tell you what I wanted to teach on and then I'll touch on it briefly. <laughs> I, I wanted to hold up two men and, and I wanted to hold up two men before you and uh, I wanted to hold up the man Solomon and the man Paul. And um, you'll catch the spirit in the heart of it now. You know the story of Solomon, Second Kings, you know, David, his dad, is now dying. And <coughs> excuse me, and he's taking, he's taking over the reins, you know. And having a good heart in him, he sees his weaknesses. And um, the Lord invites him into this beautiful conversation of, what do you want? You know, you remember the story? And, and, and he asked for? A heart that will understand, a mind that will understand. He asked for wisdom. And then the Lord said, but because you've asked for wisdom, you know the story, man. And you didn't ask for riches and long life. I will even give you that too. Yeah. And then basically the Lord said to Solomon, you will become the greatest man, the richest man ever to live. Of all those in the past and of all those to come. You know? And Solomon gets this blessing of wisdom. And he becomes the richest man in the world. You know? And uh, I'm fast-tracking the story. Remember God spoke to him and he said, Solomon, one thing, stay away from women. Especially those foreign women because they will slowly take your heart away from you. And you will end up serving other gods. And that is 100% what happened to Solomon. And he who loved the Lord in the beginning drifted. And um, ended up worshipping idols. But I wanted to read out of Ecclesiastes. This is now Solomon reflecting on his life as an old man now close to 60 and he's reflecting on his life and chapter 2 verse 4 this is now his words I made great works I built houses and planted vineyards for myself I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees I made myself pools from which to water the forests that I planted of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. It says if you've, one of the places here, but 4,000, um, what do you call it where you keep horses? That thing, 
He had ships, merchant ships to travel to take the gold. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and, and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the light of the sons of man. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Because God didn't take it away. And whatever my eyes desired. I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no for my heart found pleasure in all my toils. And this was my reward for my toils. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing them. And behold, all was vanity. And the striving. I want to take you to another portion of scripture. Fellas, it's okay if I go this way. You guys with me? We're going to land the play now. We're going to land the play now. What is this? I'm always nervous if I want to. I don't want to teach other New Testament with color around. I want to hold up another man before you. And I want to read you his life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, this one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift. At sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst. Often without food, in cold exposure, and apart from other things, there is this daily uh, uh, pressure in me of anxiety for all the churches. He's, he's, he's care for the churches is ways on me. Who is weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of a thing that shows my weakness. You still with me? I'll get to my point now. You'll see. Hopefully. 
And I'll read to you this man's probably last words. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Another weird name, I don't know. Physhikas, <laughs> I have sent to Ephesus. Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be aware of him yourself when you come, for he strongly opposes our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Because the Lord stood by me. <laughs> and he strengthened me. And through me the message might be fully proclaimed. So that all the Gentiles might hear it. And I'm going to read you. last statement of this man, not his last words. You know what I'm talking about? Paul? I'm reading out of Philippians. Just this one verse. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I can't go into detail this morning about what I want to share. It's just a broad stroke. But here are two men. One who was touched by the Lord with wisdom. The richest man ever to live. He had everything his heart desired. He said, no pleasure I withheld from you. If he wanted something, he did it. If he wanted another thing, he'd get it. And the man who had everything looks back at his life and he said, I had nothing. And the man, Paul, who had nothing, looks back at his life and he says, I have everything. Count it all loss. I count it all loss. To know Nothing in this world could satisfy nor sustain me. Because something changed in Paul's life. Galatians speaks of it. When he speaks about his encounter with God on the road to Damascus, he said, when God revealed his son to me. God revealed his son to me. You see, Paul had an encounter with a man called Christ Jesus. You know that Paul's first message out of that encounter wasn't repent. He said, and he went into the next town to proclaim Jesus. That's how he started his ministry. That he is the Lord. 
and I can't go further because I've been asked to unpack the whole thing. But here's this invitation. Jesus in John 17 says, and this is eternal life. Not that you would live forever. Not that you would go to heaven. Not that you would be blessed in this earth. But this is eternal life. The joy of knowing Him. That you know in Christ, in Jesus, you get to share His intimate love relationship with the Father. Where He stands, you now stand. When the Father embraces Him, He's embracing you. And the invitation is simply to know Him more. To be fascinated with that beautiful, beautiful man who's been holding the attention of eternity. The jewel in the crown of Christianity. The one before whom angels have bowed for billions and billions and billions and billions of years. And they can't shout enough of his worth and his glory. That man calls himself God. All things yours. And you see, here's the two pictures before you this morning. Solomon started out, Scripture says, teaching you to love the Lord. Reflecting on his love. He said, I pursue them all. And I'm dying Remember when Jesus said, if you seek to find your own life, you will. Jesus said, when you lose your life for the sake of the kingdom, you will find it. There's two choices set before you this morning. I want to pray for you and then minister one more maybe. Is that okay, Kala? Just for a moment, close your eyes with me. It's simple prayer this morning. If your heart has drifted, if your heart has drifted, if you're pursuing after Him has become cold, if your ache for His presence is no longer loud, when your flame of love is burning really slow, And there's something within you that needs to realign with this eternal purpose and value of knowing Him. To set your heart on this pilgrimage, like David would say, one thing I desire is to gaze upon, is to know the glory of God. If your heart has slightly drifted from that focus and it being the heart's greatest focus. I want you just to put your hand on your heart where you sit and I want to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and inflame every heart that's calling out to you right now. I pray that, that you would draw back unto yourself hearts that has drifted to 
that you would breathe upon the embers of hearts that are dying out. That would you cause passion to flare up. That you would baptize them with a deep, 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 deep love for you. That you would carve out in the soul of them a hunger for you like they've never had. That you would stir up desire in them to the same intensity as when you prayed in John 17, Father, I desire, I pray for that desire to be in them, Lord. And I pray that you would just help. You help us all, God, by your grace to continue pursuing and seeking you. I pray that you would help us to keep you in the first place. Loving you first. Seeking you first. Wanting you first. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I, I, uh, I thank you for simplicity. Father, for everything that's contending for our hearts, Jesus careers, um, needs, desires, people. But thank you, Father, that through Paul you've declared that the surpassing greatness, it's so simple, Lord, the surpassing greatness, every other thing that will stand against this thing will come short because the surpassing greatness of knowing him. Now, Father, we want to set our heart on what you consider as the surpassing greatness. Not even ministry, Lord Jesus. Not even ministry, Jesus. Not even what we bring or what we do for you, Lord Jesus. You have said the surpassing, far beyond, far above greatness of knowing you. And Father, we want to come together with that song. Something need to change, Lord. Something need to change, Lord, so that we line ourselves up with what you consider to be the surpassing greatness, Lord, of knowing you. Father, find hearts that's giving themselves for what you have given yourself. Death on a cross so that we can know you praise you. We honor you, Jesus. We give you all the glory. All the glory. All the glory. <laughs> and we love you, Lord.